Hi, folks. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer. This is Growing Bolder, the show about hope, inspiration, and possibility. And we have some guests for you today that embody all three. We are going to hear today from some well-known CEOs who are teaming up with Growing Bolder to inspire healthy living in all of us. Plus, a man whose lifelong dream was to fly solo around the world. So, at the age of 76, he built himself (laughs) a plane and took to the skies. We'll also get an interesting cutting-edge prescription for exercise that you are going to love from a New York Times columnist and a 52-year-old grandmother who is the oldest NCAA athlete ever. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. He's considered the world's greatest sports writer, and without a question, he's one of the most versatile writers in the country. He's the author of 18 books, a radio commentator on NPR's Morning Edition, a TV correspondent on HBO's Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, and senior contributing writer at Sports Illustrated. That is far from all, Bill. He's a six-time sports writer of the year, a member of the Sports Writers Hall of Fame, and his latest book, thankfully, is a memoir about his 50 years covering the biggest stories and the biggest names in sports. It's titled Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer. Let's welcome Frank DeFord. Hey, Frank. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, we're, we're thrilled to have you with us. And finally, you have aimed your immense storytelling skills at yourself. <laughs> when you've spent decades writing about others, was it kind of hard to write about yourself? It, it, the perspective is what you miss. I mean, I think as a journalist, through the years, I've had a pretty good idea what would interest other people. In other words, if a story about Mr. X interested me, I thought, well, gee, you know, the readers would like that. But when all of a sudden I'm the subject, you know, I'm thinking, does anybody care about this? I mean, <laughs> and so, so yeah, it's harder writing about yourself. But, of course, everybody loves, everybody loves to talk about themselves, so that makes up for it. And you know, Frank, we love listening to you talk, especially when you have stories like the one that happened in the early 60s. You were just about to graduate from Princeton, and you had a bunch of interviews at Time, and they literally wrote, not very bright, on a file that you had to carry from interview to interview. Well, I must say, in their behalf, if they had seen my college grades, which they had, um, that was a fair analysis. (laughs) Uh, I was not very bright. Grade-wise, I think I had a little intelligence beyond that, but there's nothing nothing more discouraging than handing a folder to somebody who could be a prospective employer of yours, and the first thing they're going to see is not very bright. Uh, but it sort, of, it sort of emboldened me. <laughs> you know, I, I was determined to show them that I was a little smarter than what that folder said, and what I really wanted to work for was... Uh, the only magazine there I wanted to work for was Sports Illustrated, and so it was pretty easy for me to kind of blow off the other the other guys. And, and so, and, and there's a great lesson there because you literally told everybody, "I only want to work at Sports Illustrated," which was kind of a an all or nothing deal for you. And fortunately, you got the job. So you started covering sports back in the '60s, but neither professional nor amateur sports even remotely resembled what they are today. You write that you actually bought NBA players drinks because they couldn't afford them. <laughs> yeah, that made me very attractive, didn't it? Uh, I not only was not very bright, but I was I was uh, willing to pick up the bills. But of course, it was expensive town. But athletes in those days, and not just in basketball. I mean, except for a very very few, they needed off-season jobs, and they weren't surrounded by uh, posse's and their personal trainers. Um, I'd even go so far to say that some of them like writers. I mean, we we, we were good company. They they needed buddies on the road besides their, their their teammates, and so you could get to know athletes. I think a lot better back then when I started, and and I think that I think that made for better stories. You know, we laugh now when they said, "Oh, not very bright on your file," because we know today <laughs> you're Frank DeFord. But back in the day, where did you get the brashness, Frank? What made you? What you know? What made you Frank DeFord? Ambition. I, I was, I'll admit, you know, I, I, I strived. <laughs> and I also, I'd be crazy if I didn't say I was blessed. 
I was given a certain talent to start with. I say in the book, I say in overtime, look, I'm a natural writer. And that sounds very vain. But then I go on to say I've seen a lot of natural athletes who weren't able to take that natural ability beyond that basic level. In other words, if if you're given a gift, and I was given a gift for writing, I know that, you still have to nurture it. You have to work at it. And and I think if you combine the, the natural ability that I was given and ambition and drive, um, well, I guess that's why I'm still around after all these years. We are speaking with Frank DeFord, uh, one of the most celebrated journalists of, of all time, a, a guy who found his love in writing about sports. And, and Frank, you've always been one of the very few journalists who has been able to pretty much write about whatever you wanted to write about. How you created that, I'll never know. But as you say in the book, you've always been attracted to the offbeat and the obscure. Yeah, because the obvious stuff may be the most popular. In other words, we're starting the NBA playoffs now, and we just finished the, the hockey playoffs and the, and the French Open, and all this is going on, and all these are stars that everybody is focusing on. But the stars aren't always the most interesting people. If you think about it, as a matter of fact, success doesn't lead to fascination. Success is great if you're enjoying it, but people who've had to strive and and, and haven't succeeded, um, they're often much more interesting. And, and I found that early on. It, it, for example, in sports, coaches, coaches tend to be much more intriguing subjects. First of all, they're simply older, so they're better formed. But coaches often failed as players. That's why they became coaches, right? And and, and that makes them much more interesting than the stars who simply were blessed with, 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 with great talent and, and really don't have a whole lot to say. It's, it's funny, but often the, the biggest stars are, are, are make the dullest stories. Well, well, let's continue on that, Frank, because in your 50 years, you have met some of the most iconic people you know, of, of our lives, people like Arthur Ashe, Ted Williams, Muhammad Ali. Which of the stars that, that we know of, which were the most interesting and compelling to you? The most compelling? Arthur, you mm. mentioned Ash, and and not just not just because he had that terribly sad and noble, and I, and I don't use that word very often with people, but he, the nobility that he showed in the face of death. But Arthur was important. Um, he broke the color line um, as an athlete in, in in South Africa, and I was with him, you know, and I write that in, in great detail in the book because you. Sports writers don't usually get the chance to do to cover big stories. We cover big games. We, we don't cover big stories. And, and, and the second most compelling person, oddly enough, um, would also be a tennis player, and that would be Billie Jean King. Hmm. And this is the 40th anniversary of Title IX, and Billie Jean was, uh, was out there before there was a Title IX, and she really was important in... in culturally in this country and changing the way that little girls and other people thought about women in athletics. Mm-hmm. She, she's a vital, vital person of the, 21st, of the 20th century. Well, Billie Jean King, Arthur Ashe, and, and many others aside, Frank, uh, in a way, sportscasters and sports writers get to look behind the curtain, and, and it's really not always pretty, especially these days. Many grow so weary of the egos and the attitudes that, that, it, that it really kind of ruins the job for them. Do you consider yourself still a fan, or, or do you know too much now about the inner workings to be a fan? <laughs> yeah, sometimes you wish you didn't know so much. On the other hand, Sometimes I try to be a fan and, and, and just to watch the beauty and the grace and the achievement of, of these people and forget that they may be very flawed individuals. I, I think we always have to keep in mind that in today's world, there are no secrets. And so we know a lot more bad things <laughs> about people than we used to. I'm not so sure that athletes are any worse as individuals than they were 50 or 100 years ago. It's, it's just that 
Well, we're aware of the things that they do. And it's always important to remember that athletes, by and large, are young men, right? And who makes more mistakes than young men in, in, in any society? And so I, I will try to – I can't give them all a pass, but but I do try to to, to put that in a little bit of, of perspective. We, we all ought to be a little more understanding of who they are. And, and also, finally, and then I'll end the subject – they got they got money in their pocket too, right? <laughs> so yeah. rich young men are probably traditionally the naughtiest of of uh, of all people in society. You know, Frank, you mentioned perspective, and that is something that you have unlike anyone else. I, I believe you're you're seventy three now. You're you're skilled as ever, and you've led your career pretty much wherever you wanted it to go, you don't have to work anymore. What keeps you coming in, and what keeps you excited today? I love what I'm doing. And and so few people are granted that opportunity. And also, as a writer, you, you are, you know, you're a free agent. If, if you love, for example, selling insurance, um, you still need an insurance company to do it, Right. And and you can't just sell insurance. You you need to be affiliated with a company. Or if you like working at a hardware store, you need a hardware store to hire you. And and a writer is pretty much his own person. And so as long as I have a computer and can try to turn stuff out, I'm going to keep on doing it. And then witness this this book, which I really had to be talked into by my wife who heard all these stories through the years, that, uh, you know, probably too many times, and said, you really ought to write this book and let let other people hear the stories that, that I've had to hear. Well, Frank, please thank your wife for us, because it is a great read. Folks, he is called uh, a sports writer, but what he really is is one of the greatest storytellers of all time, and now finally is his story. The book is My Life as a Sportscaster. It's called Overtime. It's by the great Frank DeFord. Frank, thanks so much for sharing a few minutes with us. Coming up, a new Growing Boulder project designed to inspire healthy lifestyles in the workplace and beyond. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with a newly expanded ER as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Hey everybody, I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. And as we learn almost every week here from our guests, the lifestyle choices we make every day in large part determine not only the length of our lives, but also the quality. If we eat right and exercise right, you get more energy and you're happier. It's just the way it works, folks. And that belief led us to a guy named Gary Sane, the CEO of Visit Orlando, who passed away recently at the age of 61. Yeah, we did a story on Gary's quest to inspire his employees to lead healthier lives. Gary believed that you don't just ask your employees to do something. You need to lead by example. So in honor of Gary, we've teamed to create the Executive Challenge, a program that believes, as Gary Sane did, that healthy employees make for healthy companies, that workplace wellness programs increase productivity and job satisfaction and decrease health care costs and sick days. The Central Florida Executive Challenge is dedicated to the memory of Gary Sane. On his 61st birthday, the former Visit Orlando CEO did 1,100 push-ups to inspire and challenge his 175 staff members to improve their overall health and fitness. I wanted to motivate my staff because we're doing a uh, sort of a wellness program. And I figured if they saw me do this many push-ups, maybe it would motivate them to do something like, uh, you know, ride a bike, 
five miles or walk two miles or do 100 sit-ups or whatever it may be. So this is a way for everyone to get involved. Sane believed that healthy employees make for healthy companies. And at the same time, what a great benefit to our team members who are just going to live a more healthy life. So it's a win-win for everyone, and I think it starts with leadership. Well, he was absolutely right. Um, it is important to set the example. Lars Holman is setting the example as president and CEO of Florida Hospital. A dedicated cross trainer, Holman rides, runs, swims, competes in triathlons, plays golf, and hikes. I do it because I enjoy it, and I'm just glad that I'm able to set an example uh, from something that I don't feel is a chore at all. I just enjoy it. Under Holman's leadership, Florida Hospital, one of the nation's largest health care providers, is building a $300 million, 172-acre health village and taking a unique approach to employee wellness and productivity, an approach based upon creating energy through lifestyle choices. An employee isn't much good to themselves or an employer if they have a lack of energy a shortage. And so our program is based on the notion that we need you as the employee uh, to have the energy to do your work. But we want you to go home with one with some energy. We also want you to live the rest of your life with energy. So we're focused on creating energy for everyone. At Tupperware Brands Global Headquarters, President and COO Simon Hemus joins employees on a regular basis for morning runs and more. He is one of our biggest cheerleaders. Every morning he's at the gym right along with me at 6 o'clock. We are working out, running, just having a good time. And I always believe that uh, if you do this in the workplace, then you take your good habits home. And then those good habits will spread amongst the community. Tupperware's commitment to employee wellness includes a gym with personal trainers and countless activities including yoga, Pilates, tennis, volleyball, softball, basketball, and more. The company cafeteria features healthy food choices complete with nutritional information and recipe books. The company has even ordered a fleet of eco-bikes to pedal across campus and they're building a butterfly garden where staff can relax and unwind. We even have a smile day, by the way. Uh, we think that... Uh, you know, to smile and to be happy is also part of your whole well-being. It's lunchtime in Orlando, and Harris Rosen, president and chief operating officer of Rosen Hotels and Resorts, is putting in his daily swim at the YMCA. I do about, about a mile and a half, five days a week. Then I walk uh, on Saturday and Sunday. Rosen's commitment to wellness gives him the energy needed to manage a very active personal and professional life. I'm almost 73. I decided many years ago that uh, I wanted my life to be uh, a complete. I, I wanted to be able to enjoy life. I wanted to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. And if one isn't feeling well, if, if, if one is uh, confined to bed, if, if, if one has aches and pains, it's very difficult to do that. So I said, okay, you watch your diet um, and you exercise and um, trust in God and, and, and hopefully the, the, the rest uh, will, will, will come true. Rosen believes in the value of good health and active lifestyle so much that he's been providing his employees quality health care for 20 years, including supervised programs to quit smoking and lose weight. We have acupuncture, we have chiropractics, we have cardiology, we have radiology, all there in that facility. We have mammograms, so the ladies can go right to our facility and, and, and get done what they need to get done. Rosen believes good health is good business. We figured that over 20 years, my little company has saved over $200 million by keeping our costs down. Central Florida executives leading by example, proving the benefits of an active lifestyle, enabling their employees to pursue health and wellness, and honoring the memory and message of a fellow executive. It's just really starting with discipline, maybe a goal, and just working towards that goal each and every day. It's not easy, but you got to work at it. But I think the benefits are tremendous in the long run. And the more of us that do this, so much the better. And we have a much better society. I believe in it. We did it because it was the right thing to do. But you know, sometimes, I think often, when you do the right thing, you're rewarded for it. 
And, and so we're taking good care of our associates. We love them dearly. There is a lot of unofficial talk throughout Central Florida of making Central Florida America's healthiest community. Do you think that's possible? Absolutely. It's a, it's a great thing to aspire to, and I believe we have uh, every possible ingredient necessary to do that. We just need a commitment and we need a plan. The Central Florida Executive Challenge. Are you in? Time now for a quick pep talk from Olympic gold medalist Dr. Dot Richardson, considered the greatest softball player of all time. And, you know, Dot really is the perfect example of going after your dreams because the truth is nothing comes easily for Dot. You're right, Mark. And what a great example because she was never the best athlete but still became the best softball player in the world. She wasn't the smartest kid in the class, but still became an orthopedic surgeon. And Dot says the key is to believe in yourself. And if you're not good at something or you don't have experience, don't let the doubt scare you away. Hi, I'm Dr. Dot Richardson, two-time Olympic gold medalist. If you're waiting for your life's purpose to find you, it could be a very long wait. Those who find the most success and happiness in life Don't wait for the world to come to them. Your passion is out there waiting for you to find it. Start today by simply committing to try new things, to get a little outside of your comfort zone. That's where life gets exciting and rewarding. And don't worry if you're not good at something. Come on, nobody's good at something right away. The important question is, do you love it? When you do more of what you love, purpose and prosperity, begins to flow into your life. Trust me. Isn't she great? And you can find more inspiring pep talks from Dot and other members of Team GB at growingboldertv.com. Coming up, proof once again that it's never too late to go after your dream, even if it's building your own plane and flying it solo around the world. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. Hi, folks. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. This is Growing Boulder. And our next guest is living proof that it is never too late to achieve even a lifelong dream. Bill Randolph always dreamed of flying solo around the world. And at the age of 76, two years after beating throat cancer, he decided it was finally time to do it. So here's what he did. He flew a homemade, single-engine, tiny plane over 27,000 miles. What? He covered 30 countries, Mark, went across six continents. And that was seven years ago. Today, Bill's 83, and he's a first-time author. His book, Flight of a Lifetime, begins like this. Want to have a barrel of fun? Meet new interesting people? Have a magnificent adventure and live on the edge? Then get yourself a small airplane and fly around the world. <laughs> so let's meet this amazing man, Bill Randolph. How are you, Bill? Uh, good morning. I'm fine. Thank uh, how, you. How about you? You know, a 70-something-year-old adventurer, 70 years in the making. Uh, say again? You're an adventurer, you know. What took you so well, long? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is kind of fun to go out on the edge and try new things. You know, we mentioned in the intro, Bill, that you battled and beat throat cancer two years before your big adventure. Did that in any way contribute to your desire or provide motivation for that trip? It provided motivation. You say, hey, the clock is ticking. You better get going. Well, you know, a lot of people, when they think that, you know, they, they they take a walk around the block. They don't build a plane and fly it around the world. I just looked at that cancer business as a motivating thing, and that's all. And as soon as I was able, I just got on my horse and started riding. <laughs> yeah, a horse you built yourself. 
You know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Always wanted to do that too. You know, I I can't help but think that you know you're out there, you're building this single engine plane in a hangar at the airport, right? So if I go, hey, where's Dad? And Mom goes, yeah, he's out back building his plane. He's going to fly around the world. I'm going, stop him! You can't let him do that. <laughs> well, actually, my wife didn't believe I was really serious for a long time. Although, you know, I, I've taken off all through my life and gone on flying trips. So she was used to me taking off and going places, but uh, she didn't quite believe the trip around the world bit. So you you take off and you fly to South America, to Africa, to Asia, to Hawaii, and finally home. And, and Bill, I've looked at your book, and I'm not sure if it's meant to inspire someone to take a similar trip or to convince them not to, because <laughs> you had a few struggles, didn't you? Well, yeah, yes, uh, in a way I did, but I think all of that added to the adventure and the color of the doggone trip. I. I, I welcome each and every event that occurred. Well, I mean, let's list some of those events. Oh, you no. you were arrested four times. You what? had several emergency landings. You were detained and locked up twice. You had an aircraft fire. You were intercepted by fighters over the Mediterranean. Did we miss anything? Well, <laughs> well that's a kind of the way it went. But, <laughs> you know, all those things were colorful. <laughs> And really, most of them were sort of ridiculous, except, you know, the the really uh, life-threatening things. I'd say those were real challenges, but, you know, the, the arrest, the fighter planes and all that stuff, I thought was all kind of ridiculous at the time. So, so Bill, <laughs> there's that throat cancer, huh? Some of the leftover remnants of that. T- tell us, though. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's a lifelong cough. What is it that makes you you? You know, how you, we can hear in your voice. You've got that passion. You, you've got courage. You've got moxie. You've got this sense of curiosity. How do we all get some of that? Oh, I, I, if you can hear that in my voice, it's news to me. But, you know, I, I've always, uh, you know, I've flown all my life, and uh, yeah, I just like to go out and do new things. Unfortunately, I spent too many years in a corporate world and, and didn't, didn't get going really as soon as I should have. Folks, this is a guy that at uh, 76 uh, built a plane and flew it around the world. He's 83 now. Bill, what's your advice to others who have dreamed for years of doing something but still haven't done it? Uh, get going early and just do it. I, I, that was my, that's my only uh, regret about the whole thing. I didn't start early enough. So, you know, at, at my age now, it's tougher. <laughs> Very much so, because once you pass 80, you know, the the energy isn't quite there anymore. Well, you're not doing bad. You know, you're a first-time author. You're, you know, a pilot, of the, a guy behind this new adventure book. The national spotlight is shining on you a little bit. You know, you make being over 80 sound pretty darn cool to us. Well, yeah, I'm still chugging along, still flying, and uh, still may make a trip or two, but not quite as uh, extensive as the last, that big one. And and finally, what are the, the, the trips ahead? Any other big adventures planned? Well, I did have a couple planned. Uh, one turned, I was going to fly around the world again, but, you know, I was going to go across Russia, and my book explains all this. It just turned out to be too expensive because the Russians just really want to bleed you of money. You know, the the total price looked like uh, you know well north of a hundred thousand dollars, and I just didn't think it was worth it. Well, Bill, and the trip a trip to uh, Eastern uh, Siberia a couple of years ago, but uh, my medical expired, uh, and the FAA would not renew it immediately, so I had to scrub that trip. Well, listen, Bill, we think you're a fabulous, fascinating guy, and we hope you keep taking to the skies. The book is a great read. It's called The Flight of a Lifetime. We've been talking to the amazing Bill Randolph. Coming up, a cutting-edge prescription for exercise that you are going to love. That's next on Growing Boulder. 
Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Hi, Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. And our next guest has been writing about personal wellness for more than a decade. First, as a health and fitness reporter for Runner's World and Bicycling Magazines, she's now a frequent contributor to Oprah Magazine and Women's Health. And you know what else? Her phys ed column, it's one of the most read and shared columns in the whole New York Times. You are going to love her message about exercise because her new book is about how little exercise you can do in order to get all the benefits that come with it. It's called The First 20 Minutes, Surprising Science Reveals How We Can Exercise Better, Train Smarter, and Live Longer. Don't you want to find out more? (laughs) Let's welcome Gretchen Reynolds. Hi, Gretchen. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Oh, the only way you could have a better book is if you wrote Eating Chocolate on the Way to Health and Vitality. <laughs> but it, it's probably it's probably great news for a lot of people to at least have in their minds that the first 20 minutes is uh, the most important part of exercising? It is, actually. I, I think there's a very strongly entrenched myth that you have to do a lot of exercise for it to mean anything, that you have to go out and run for an hour, or or that you even have to run. But the science is now very persuasively showing us that a small amount of activity provides enormous health benefits. And in fact, for someone who's been sedentary, getting up and moving around for 20 minutes, those first 20 minutes of getting up off the couch, will immediately begin to reduce your risk for the big chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, dementia. It will improve your mood, and it seems very clear that it can start just almost immediately to increase your lifespan. So you get huge benefits from just a small amount of movement. You know, Gretchen, we have all learned that people hear what they want to hear. Uh, so, so before we explain why you really don't need a lot of exercise, let's establish very clearly that you do need some exercise, because I think the latest research says that two-thirds of all Americans get no exercise at all. Yes, that, which is really discouraging. We are the most sedentary society that has ever existed. Wow. And the human body, it's really clear, is fundamentally built to be moving. Our our genome was set back in the hunter-gatherer days when you either moved or you didn't eat or or you were eaten. (laughs) And it's changed very little since then. So if we don't move, if we sit all day long, everything starts to go wrong inside our bodies. We are just not built physiologically to be sedentary. So we need to be moving. But movement, which is very natural for the human body, does not mean you have to, you don't even have to quote-unquote exercise. Go out and garden. Walk around the block a few times. Don't call it exercise. Call it a walk. That can make a huge huge difference in health and even in fitness. So so what you're saying basically is we don't have to run out to the local track store and buy one of those cute little water repelling outfits. <laughs> we don't have to join a gym or you don't have to do some formal, you know, Jack LaLanne type thing to get exercise. What are some of the misconceptions that you've unearthed about our concept of exercise? Well, the biggest is that it, it even has to be exercise, which is sort of what you just said, any sort of activity will improve your health. And so redefine what you're doing. Park further away so that you walk more. Walking is a 
fabulous exercise, and the human body is built for it. Almost all of us are capable of walking and, and are good at, at it. That We are much more efficient in terms of how we use fuel when we walk than when we run. So go for a walk. As I said, garden. If you like swimming, swim. Do a push-up now and then. <laughs> you don't have to belong to a gym. You have really fine um, weight training equipment in your own body. If you can push your own body weight up off the ground, you're healthy, and you will probably be physically independent for years longer than someone who cannot do that. We are speaking with Gretchen Reynolds, uh, among other things, a columnist for the New York Times, uh, who has written a new book called The First 20 Minutes, uh, Surprising Science Reveals How We Can Exercise Better, Train Smarter, and Live Longer. Uh, And and Gretchen, if we do accept the fact, and and you make it very persuasive, so we will, that a little exercise is important, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that a lot of exercise is also not good for some people. No, more exercise is terrific. There is actually, it appears, a very steep curve in terms of the health benefits from exercise. You get most of the benefits in the first 20 to 30 minutes. And that's even for people who are relatively fit. There have been interesting studies showing that people who walk for about 30 minutes most days of the week have 20% less risk of premature death than people who do not walk. But for every additional 15 minutes of walking, you get about another 4% drop in um, premature death. So the curve flattens, but it does keep rising. So if you want to do more, then that's great. If you don't feel capable of doing a lot, then anything is certainly very worthwhile. And there does seem to be some point at which the curve of benefits will go down. But that is if you're doing a lot of exercise. If you're running for an hour and a half, two hours a day, less than that, you're still going to get benefits. It will be good for your body, but you don't have to do a marathon. So Gretchen, everybody today is talking about vigorous exercise. Like it's not as walking is not nearly as good as sprinting. Uh, where do you where do you fall with that? It really depends on what your goal is from exercise, and that's a very important point. If you want to be healthy, if you want to lessen your risk for some of the big chronic diseases, you want to live longer, you want to just be capable of going up and down stairs, getting up off a chair, then going for a walk, and it doesn't even have to be a really brisk walk, just a walk that feels comfortable, that you're at least getting your heart rate up a little bit, that will make you healthier. And if that's your only goal, then just keep walking. If you would like to get better, If you would like to get a little faster, a little stronger, a little more physically fit, then you do have to go a little harder. That's when you overload your body. That's sort of the whole point of more vigorous exercise, is your body will then adapt and you will be more fit, stronger, healthier, physically better. If, again, you don't care about becoming faster, then don't worry about it. Define what you want from this activity, and then that helps you figure out what activity you should be doing. Good news from Gretchen Reynolds. The book is called The First 20 Minutes, and folks, uh, very interesting in that we need only a little exercise to get great benefits, but uh, she also has a great discussion on inactivity physiology, which reminds us that doing nothing will kill us. Coming up, a two-time grandmother who is tearing up the track as the oldest female athlete in NCAA history. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine 
where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton and our next guest is a 52-year-old grandmother of two and thought to be not only the oldest female ever to compete in NCAA athletics, but... Also the first two-time grandmother to compete at the NCAA level. She's a middle-distance runner for the Malone University track and field team in Ohio. Let's find out more as we welcome Diana Fury. Hi, Diana. Hi. This is a fascinating story, and I'm guessing that you didn't start running collegiate track to to be the first at anything. It's just kind of what happened. How did you end up running collegiate track at the age of 52? Well, I am a non, obviously a non-traditional student at Malone University. I raised, um, my husband and I raised our children until they were mostly out of the house. I have a 16-year-old left here at home. And I had been waiting for them to get older so that I could go back to college and get my degree. And I happened to have run into the cross-country coach um, who saw me there and asked me what I was doing there. And I told him that I went to school there. And he was very surprised about that. And he asked me to come to his office and talk with him a bit. And from that conversation, I ended up running cross-country and then in the spring ran track. So I'm guessing, so, I'm guessing, Diana, if you look back, you, you're probably one of those people who was always a track star and always an athlete, you know, with high school records all over the place. That, that's you, right? No. <laughs> I, um, on July the 4th of this year, I will celebrate my sixth anniversary of running. Wow. So so how did this go? This coach, obviously, you know, like Bill said, he couldn't he didn't know you as a high school or former collegiate runner. I mean, how, how did he why did he call you into the office? How did he know that you were a runner? Because a friend of his was my coach. And so numerous times they had discussed me and my running and the progress that I had been making and so I knew him, I knew Coach Hazen through my friend Joe Clark. And Joe um, just, like I said, would, would occasionally talk to Coach Hazen and ask him for his advice and the advice that Joe was giving me. And so Coach Hazen knew of me because of that. Gotcha. What made you start running in the first place, Diana? I have always been a very active person, so I didn't really go from the couch, you know, to running. But probably the the big decision day was when I went to a local road race, and I went just to watch my niece while her mom and her dad ran a race. And to tell you the truth, when the, the gun went off and all the runners started down the street, I just decided that was something I wanted to do. And so I came home that day, and I ran four miles. It wasn't pretty, and the next day was pretty tough getting up out of bed. But um, I ran another four miles, and about a year and a half later, I, I sought out a coach. And the rest is history. That's, that's kind of how it went for me. And it truly is history. I mean, literally. And folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Diana Fury, who is thought to be the oldest female to ever compete in NCAA athletics. She's a middle distance runner for Malone University in Ohio. Uh, how have you done in your meets, Diana? Are you beating some of your younger competitors who, in truth, are young enough to be your daughter? <laughs> yes. Um, I am not a, I'm not one of our top seven girls, um, in, in the distance that I run, but um, coach considers me in cross country, basically a middle of the packer. Um, at our big meet this year, I think we're in cross country where we had about 
I want to say upper 20, low 30 schools competing. I was definitely in the middle of the pack, and he had told me that if for uh, as far as seven of the schools that were there, um, I would be their top runner. Wow. Um, in in the my um, probably in track, my most promising event is the 10K, the 10,000 meters, and that is where I scored this year for our team, which was real exciting for me. So I think for next season, I will probably be focusing on the 10,000 meter. Um, and um, 5K, 5,000 meter, we call it 5K, I've done well in. I am not the last person in. I am never the first. Um, but the 10,000 meter seems to be kind of my sweet spot in running. What do the other competitors think when they see it? Do they want to come up and say, hey, look, lady, I think you're in the wrong place? Mm-hmm. You know, among my own teammates, you there's no difference in how I'm treated or we're all just out there doing our workouts. Um, initially, when I started in cross country, it was a, it was a bit intimidating because I felt like the other girls were really kind of giving me the once-over. Um, after the meet was finished, I didn't get that anymore. I had girls come up to me and um, congratulate me and thank me for pushing them, um, telling me how cool it was they thought I was running. Um, so it's been a very positive thing. Um, I, I'm... I I was probably more overwhelmed by the thought of it than actually the reality of it, how it played out. Hmm. So the schools do know that there's this older lady on the team, um, and many times they don't know who I am until they get up close enough. Well, that says something about the way you look from afar. Uh, you know, it, Bill, another example of an unintentional role model. Diana Fury didn't set out to, to be an example to anybody for anything. She was just doing her thing. And uh, uh, is it lost on you, Diana? Do you take pride? Uh, are you amazed that you are the oldest female athlete to ever compete at the NCAA level? Does it seem like it's that, that, that hard of a thing to do? To tell you the truth, I, I don't think about it that I, I probably never thought about it till the original article was done back in in April. Um, I just I just love to run. I I love my teammates. It was kind of one of those kind of once in a million things where you're in the right place at the right time and you get asked to do something. And it's been a pretty incredible experience for me. And I probably don't think about it in terms of how old I am as far as the NCAA goes. I just, it's more just getting out there and just being a team member. How about the excitement, Diana, of living your life again in the 50s, being back in school, studying for a major, having a goal when you come out of school, being part of athletics, you know, being involved. You're living the dream that all of us have in the back of our minds. Yes, I am, and it's it's a privilege and an honor, and I do think about that part a lot, that I really am very blessed that I am able to live that dream, and it, it is very exciting in that way. I love being back in school. Um, when I graduate next spring, it will have taken me exactly 20 years to get my undergraduate degree, um, so I'm very, very excited um, about that, and I, I do plan to go to grad school. And I never thought when I when I started back to school, I mean, it was never even remotely a thought in my mind that I would be competing for my school. What are you studying, Diana? I'm an exercise physiology major. Wow, perfect. Hey, finally, before we let you go, you know, you mentioned that uh, your your teammates treat you, you know, just like they uh, like they treat themselves, which is really one of the great things about athletics. Age goes away. Have you thought about after you graduate getting involved in masters track, which you know has eighty and ninety year old people running? Um, you know, I I haven't given a, a lot of thought, mostly because. I'm just now finding out what's out there for runners that are masters athletes and right now I'm I'm looking to finish, you know, my last year of cross country and track 
and get into grad school, and then I'm I'm really open to whatever's out there for me to do. I do live in an incredible running community, so I have lots of opportunities to race and run here um, locally where I live. How great to meet the oldest female athlete in NCAA history at the age of 52, inspiring other people to do the same thing. You go, Diana Fury. Well, folks, that wraps up another show. Actually, we've still got the part of the show in which we have our call to action. But our call to action isn't to sell you anything. Our call to action is to sell you on yourself. That's it. If you believe in yourself, this Growing Boulder stuff gets pretty darn easy. Oh, I love that, Mark. And if you don't believe in yourself, folks, you ought to. All you have to do is decide that you do want more and then go get it one step at a time. And yes, occasionally you are going to take a step backward, but if you keep trying, keep believing, you will transform your life. Amen, Brother Bill, preaching from the pulpit. So don't be afraid to do your thing, folks. And remember, you've always got friends and encouragement right here at Growing Boulder. And not only right here on the Growing Boulder radio show, but also Growing Boulder TV and GrowingBoulder.com. And remember, find us and then like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter so we can stay connected all the time. We'll look for you next time. Thanks. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age, it's about attitude. Stand side.